So if you'd open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 20, we'll continue after finishing Psalm 53, we'll continue in 1 Samuel 20. There's one thing I'd like you to consider, and we've talked about this, I think, a few times in the past. Are all of the promises that we read in the Old Testament, the promises to David, are they for us? Are the Psalms written in such a way that we can grab hold of those promises in the Psalms and apply them to ourselves? It's an important question, I think. Many in today's religious environment and churches would say no. Really, everything before the death and resurrection of Christ was for the Jews. We just kind of look at it and we thank God for it, but it's not really ours. What came after the death and resurrection of Christ, that's ours. Well, you probably know my answer. As we've been working through this text, we work through Genesis. It's all for the church. It's all for us. Now, you and I are not David. We have a much less important role than David had. We're not the, the, the type of Christ whose ancestor is going to be or who's an ancestor of Christ. Uh, we're not kings. We're not the king by which all other kings are going to be measured like David was. The future Messiah is not going to come from our loins. Important types or pictures of Christ are not our lives. But David was all that. So David is different. He was a man, but God called him to a a very, very important role. And we're not David. However, with all that being said, we can still hold to the same promises that David held to. We can still trust the same faithfulness and steadfast love that David trusted, that anchored his life. Dr. Ralph Davis said of this passage, I do not need to share David's experiences. It is enough to know David's God. As long as the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, as long as the angel of Yahweh, Jesus, keeps pitching his camp around those who fear him and delivering them, I should be content. So the people of Israel would read 1 Samuel and they would take great comfort from all that we're going to study tonight, that God is faithful in his promises to David. And the people of God in every generation are similarly encouraged in the promises to Abraham and to David are fulfilled in Christ and their hours as well. So we're going to read 1 Samuel chapter 20. It's a long passage. Please remain seated, but hear this inspired word of God. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do it for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow 
is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. And if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you, if I knew it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go into the field. Let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow's the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself, when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on the side of you. Take them. Then you are to come, for the Lord, as the Lord lives, it is safe for you. And there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you. Then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. And the king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. And Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, Something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, 
Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to the boy, Run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place of the arrow Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. Would you please stand for the last few verses of God's holy word in honor of God's word. Verse 41. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, We come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would open our eyes, that your word would penetrate our hearts, that you would cut deep and cut straight, and that we would be changed forever. We need you. Hear our prayer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it was interesting to me that last week we spent some time talking about David's confidence in God's love. Remember, Hesed the covenant faithfulness, the covenant love of God. This is all in Psalm 59. It was more than just love, which we said in English is a, is a more sloppy word. In the Hebrew, hesed is a very particular word. It's faithful, loyal, steadfast, love. And it's always related to a covenant, to a promise, almost always. Related to a covenant or a promise. Especially God's covenant promises to his chosen people. We saw last week that this covenant love was not just for David and the ancient Israelites, but it's also for us. It's the love God has for us. All who have been made children of Abraham by the grafting work of the Holy Spirit have these promises for their own. 
So God must really want us to understand, I think, this faithfulness and this, this steadfast love and this covenant love. Because here we are again with the same theme, really, in this chapter, the faithfulness and covenant love of God. The text points us straight to covenant love. In fact, covenant is the theme of the whole chapter, covenant. Security in the covenant is the title. We're going to talk about how David appeals to the covenant. We'll see the basis of the covenant between Jonathan and David, which is love, which is also the basis of God's love or covenant with us. And we'll see also that there are always enemies of God's covenant people. So this is a long chapter. It can easily be divided, though. We'll I'm not going to go through verse by verse and look at each particular thing that we can pull out. But just by way of, of understanding this, this particular text, we can see that it's divided first into David's questions to Jonathan. You remember he's going to Jonathan. Why is your dad trying to kill me? That takes about nine verses. Then David and Jonathan's discussion in the field. Jonathan said, come, let's go to someplace private. They go to a field and they talk about what's going to happen, what the plan is. Then we see the section that deals with David's absence at the table ends with the throwing of the spear and Jonathan storming off in anger. And then fourthly, the chapter can be divided into that last part of just the arrows, shooting the arrows into the field, the little boy running out um, to get the arrows. I wonder who that little boy is. That's something I've always wondered about. Who is that kid? But I intend to preach through the chapter really showing the links of covenant that we see in each of these sections and how David's view of covenant is significant for us. Like I want you to really grab a hold of how David viewed the relationships that he had with Jonathan and God in light of covenant because it changes how you look at God's love for you when you see that God has bound himself to you. He's, he's committed himself to you. Not because you, you deserve it or, or anything like that, but just because he has. And it's important, too, to, to not get focused on covenant over God and his love. Like, the only reason covenant, I believe, is important is because it reflects something about God. So God doesn't need covenant. He uses covenant to show us something about himself. But the covenant concept is powerful because this is how God has revealed himself to us. Um, so that's also, uh, I think, a special thing to take from the text. Just look at covenant and see God using this agreement to show us how he loves us. And this really gives us great security. And that's, that's I think, the point for the church. It's the point for the people of Israel when you recognize what God has done to bring you to himself and to make you his own people, you have security in that. Like it's a, it's a steadfast rock based on the love of God. Okay, let's look at point one, how David appeals to the covenant. We see in verse one, if you remember the last chapter, you remember Saul wanted to kill David. He sent people to David's house, assassins basically, to wait outside his door to kill him. And David sneaks out the window and goes to Ramah. He goes to Samuel. And Saul sends his assassins to Samuel to kill David. And they end up prophesying. They end up proclaiming the truth of God. 
they're defeated by the Spirit of God. And then Saul goes himself, and Saul is defeated by the Spirit of God, so much so that he's, he's on his face, naked before God. His kingly robes, and we know in Samuel the robe is a, is a symbol of kingship, a symbol of God's favor. And once again, we see the robe, David's robe, or sorry, Saul's robe, basically on the ground. Saul is naked before God. He's laying on the ground. He's been defeated by God himself. So that's the end of chapter 19. David uses that time, it appears, where Saul is just out of it for a couple days, and David skedaddles. He runs, it seems, to Jonathan's house. He goes to Gibeah, where Jonathan is. He wants to know why the king is trying to kill him. I think that's a fair question. What have I done? The, the king, your dad, is trying to kill me. And Jonathan doesn't think it's true, does he? It's in verse 2. Jonathan's like, no, that ain't true. No, my dad would never do that. And I know this because he doesn't keep secrets from me. Jonathan was probably his primary advisor. Uh, Saul probably leaned heavily on Jonathan, wanting him to know everything that he knows to bring him into all the decisions because Jonathan was going to be the next king. He was the crown prince. So Jonathan says, no, it's not true. This thing you say is not true. But of course, we know why Saul isn't telling Jonathan this thing, that he really does want to kill David. We know why. Because he knows Jonathan loves David. His whole family seems to love David. So he's going to keep it a secret from Jonathan that he wants to kill David. And finally, David says, I'm just, I'm this far from being killed. I'm this far from death. You got to listen to me. And Jonathan in verse 4 says, Okay, tell me what to do. So in verses 5 through 7, we see David and Jonathan talking about this plan. Okay, here's what we'll do the feast is coming. I'm not going to be there at the king's table, the king's court. All the most important men were expected to be there during the feast days, and David's seat was going to be empty. And we'll just see how the king reacts. David seems to know how this is going to turn out. But this is the plan they come up with. But then look at verse 8. He says, deal kindly with your servant. This is David talking to Jonathan. And the word servant or slave in Hebrew means servant or slave. He's deprecating himself. He's saying, remember me. I'm your servant. I'm your slave. He's humbling himself before Jonathan. And why should Jonathan be kind to him? He says, deal kindly with your servant. Why? Well, he tells us, because you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. He's referring to the covenant promise that the two had made in chapter 18. Verses 3 and 4, I'll read it for you. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. He's basically giving all this to David, saying, I'm the crown prince, but I know that really you're the crown prince because you've been anointed. Here's the kingly robe. Here's all my weapons. Here's everything. He basically gave up everything that should be his for the will of God and for his love for David. And many people, and I'm one of them, really think that in this instance, Jonathan is a type of Christ. Jonathan emptied himself and became nothing in the kingdom for all intents and purposes for David. 
So David is telling Jonathan, remember your covenant promises. Be kind to me. Be kind to your servant because you've made a covenant with me before the Lord, a covenant of the Lord. So this is telling because David is really scared. The king of the land is trying to kill him. He's scared. What does he do? He goes to the one with whom he has a covenant. Why? Because in a covenant, there's security, there's safety, there's something sure and steadfast, something you can hold to. And this is why he says, deal kindly with your servant. And I know you're not going to be surprised, but this word translated deal kindly is hesed. It's steadfast love. He's saying, steadfastly love your servant. Be loyal, be dependable, be steadfast in your love for me. Deal with me with Hesed because you made a covenant with me before the Lord. You promised to support me and defend me. So now do it, now show it. So certainly the application is, is easy to see. When we are in similar trials of life, we do what David did. We appeal to the covenant promises of God. We appeal to the word of God. We are like David in a covenant with someone greater than us. But the difference is that our covenant is with the Almighty God. And it's impossible for him not to do his part. He established the covenant. He's going to keep all sides of the covenant. And that means that we are more secure and more safe than David ever could be in his covenant with Jonathan. So how do you plead the promises of the covenant for yourself? Like, how do you do that? Let's say you have a a terrible day or some tragedy happens in your family or you get really sick. How How do you pray in light of God's promise, in light of God's covenant? Well, you remember the terms of the covenant that God has promised to make you his own child and to be your God. You remember the promises to Abraham, the promises of Scripture that are all based on God's covenant with his people. He promised Abraham that he would forever be with his people. He promised that whoever cursed Abraham would be cursed and whoever blessed Abraham would be blessed. He said throughout the Scriptures, if you call on me on the day of trouble, I will answer. Why will he answer? Because he's covenanted to do so. And it's okay to tell God that you know the promises he's made. David does this throughout the Psalms. God, remember your steadfast love. Remember your covenant made with Abraham. Remember. We should do the same. And Jesus in the new covenant didn't replace the old covenant, but Jesus just expands and fulfills the covenant. In a way that Old Testament saints could only have hoped to see. Because we see the Christ, the Messiah. We see that we are adopted heirs with him. We're children of God. He will never leave us or forsake us. We have an inheritance in heaven awaiting for us. He loves us. The Father loves us. As he loves his own son. Can you imagine? Did you know that the Father in heaven loved you? as he loves his own son. And yet this is what the scripture teaches us. We're the apple of God's eye. In short, the almighty creating God has covenanted to make me his own child and to love me personally. 
and you personally. And this relationship of love is based on God's own promise to redeem a people for himself. He will do it. He will fulfill it. He's bound himself to us. So there is no higher promise. We can rest on that promise and appeal to that promise just like David did. What do I do when I'm in distress? I say, God, remember me. I'm your child. I'm your son. I'm your beloved. Remember me. I'm suffering. This hurts. This is painful. I don't know what to do. I'm confused. Turn to God in the day of trouble and he will answer. So David appeals to the covenant he had with Jonathan. But in verses 12 through 23, we see that he also knows the promises of the covenant are based in love. So what happens in these verses? David and Jonathan go to the field to continue their conversation. They want privacy, I think. They don't want anyone to hear what they're saying. The event shows that they weren't taking any chances. It also shows that they didn't know if they would even be able to talk again. That's the whole arrow thing. They didn't know if they were being followed, if they would ever get to talk to each other like this again in Gibeah. So they have this this signal that they're going to use. Like when I want to sing a cappella, I kind of give Helen or Megan the little pull on the ear. Whatever I do, look at them with a funny look or something. Like there's a signal that's going to happen so that they know exactly what David should do. If Jonathan shoots the arrow and says to the, to the little boy, the arrows are over here, then David's safe. But if Jonathan shoots the arrows out there and says to the little boy, keep going, keep going, then David is not safe, and he should be the one who keeps going. But while they're in the field, in verses 12 to 23, we see that they also reaffirm their covenant with each other. And it's super sweet. Jonathan says in verse 14, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. What's he saying? Well, in the ancient Near East, if you became the king and you weren't actually related to the king, or even if you were sometimes, the first thing you did as the new king was kill everyone who was related to the old king. Everybody. And Jonathan is saying, When you become king, don't kill all my people. Don't do that. Remember your covenant promise, your steadfast love of the Lord in that promise that I and my people will not be cut off. These verses, verses 14, 15, 16, and 17, are just rich with love and promise. Jonathan wants his own part of the covenant to be known, to be formalized, He wants his descendants to remain on the earth. And of course, David honors that covenant with Mephibosheth, if you remember that. Remember your covenant with me, he says. Show me the loyal, faithful covenant, promise-keeping, steadfast love of the Lord. The same love that the Lord shows us, you show my people. He uses the word steadfast love, hesed, twice in the same sentence. This is an emphatic exclamation point. Show me the steadfast love of the Lord. Do not cut off your steadfast love from my house. This covenant is based on love. He also uses the word cut off three times. This Hebrew word cut off, karat, literally means to cut off. 
And it's the same word used for covenant. It means covenant. To cut a covenant. Actually, the words to cut a covenant are a covenant is added just for so that we understand what they're saying. But to cut off is the word, is literally the meaning of the word. Well, why is that? Because the covenant with God and Abraham was the sign was circumcision. It was cutting off the foreskin of the male. It was a literal cutting off. So Jonathan plays on the richness of this word to drive home his point that this is a real promise. He says, do not cut off your hesed love, your steadfast, loyal love for my house. When the Lord cuts off every one of his enemies, these are all the things in the covenant that they're making together. And Jonathan made a cut off, made a cut, cut a covenant with the house of David. It's beautiful in, in the Hebrew, all the, the symbology of that covenant between the two of them. And what's the summary of the terms of their covenant? It's love. Look in verse 17. We see them swearing to keep their promises because of their love. And Jonathan uses this, or this word is used three times in a row. By his love for him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. Everything that they're promising is based on mutual love. Well, certainly with God, everything that he's promised is based on his love. Because our love is more fickle. But his love. In verse 23, we see that Jonathan says, Behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. The highest oath, the highest vow, the highest promise that can be made is to say that God is in it. God is in the middle of this thing. You've probably read in the Old Testament, the Lord is witness between you and me. It's the same idea. The Lord is in the middle of this. If you mess this up, if you break your promise, the Lord is going to hold you accountable. God is the covenant enforcer of his own covenant, of course, between this covenant, between these two men as well. Jonathan says, if I die, God is still watching and he'll become your enemy if you break your vow. The Lord is with you and between you and me. It's the same sentiment you see used in a courtroom when you raise your right hand. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help you God. Why do we say, so help me God, in a culture that is increasingly pagan? Why do people even say that? There's something deep in a man who knows that God exists and that he's the only sure thing and so it's still right for people to do that. They place their hands on a Bible, of all things, and they say, so help me God. They know it's right, even if they hate it. They know it's right. God's the highest authority. We're infinite. Sorry, we're finite and fickle, but God is infinite and perfectly faithful. He sees everything. So God's love binds all the covenant promises between these two men together. And God's love for us is the same. He's promised never to cut us off, but to cut off our enemies in salvation in Jesus Christ and his covenant love with us. It's a permanent, faithful, and sure thing. So when life was hard for David, he trusted the promise of his greater friend and they reaffirmed their covenant. We should do the same. We should remember all that God has promised when life is hard, appeal to the covenant and then remember the love behind the covenant because that is sure and safe and secure. 
Finally, let's look at the enemies of the covenant, verses 24 through 34. In verse 24, David hides. Jonathan goes and executes this plan. They go to the meal, and there's the empty seat where David's supposed to be sitting, feasting with the king, but it's empty. David's out in the field hiding. Saul notices this thing, but he assumes that David's just unclean. It's the Jewish religious um, uh, uncleanness that might be caused by really anything, touching a dead body or anything that might make you unable to be part of worship because you would be infecting other people with your uncleanness or whatever. So he thinks he's unclean. And the second day he asks Jonathan where he is and he hears Jonathan's excuse and he flies into a rage. He curses his own son. He disparages his mother in the most vulgar way and then tries to kill his own son with a sword or with a spear. I mean, I thought I had an anger problem when I was younger. Like, that's bad, throwing a spear at your son. And Jonathan's enraged and ashamed because his father had disgraced him. So there is security in the covenant that we have with God, but there are always going to be enemies of the covenant. Always. Satan, all those who reject Christ, the whole world, They treat us as enemies and they hate us. Of course, Jesus said, in this world we will have trouble, but he gives us peace. And yet we know that there is trouble. And have you noticed that you can be in a public setting or you can be in a class or you can be maybe not as much in East Tennessee, but I've certainly felt this in other places in the world. As soon as you mention Jesus and it's not cursing, as soon as you mention Jesus in any positive way, It's like an immediate tension. You see people kind of prickling. Like, what is happening? It's because they hate your Savior. Often, depending on the context, you'll see people who are nice and normal become vicious and hateful. You might have even seen it from unsaved family members. Mentioning Jesus is about the last thing you ever would do because they'll fly into a rage like Saul. David's enemies are always present. Your enemies are always present, whether you know it or not. But God is always present as well to protect and deliver you. So we can be confident. We also see that Saul seems to really be reminding Jonathan of Jonathan's own kingdom. And I think this is another enemy. It's not just the actual people who hate us, but the lure of the world and the lure of our advancement or the lure of riches or comfort or all these things. In these verses, he says to Jonathan, you've basically given your kingdom over to David, to the shame of your mother. Saul wants Jonathan to build his own kingdom. And this is really how the world today and always has looked at life. You get what's yours. You run after it hard. You pursue pursue your own interests no matter what. But we know that that's not the way of God's covenant people. We do the opposite. We push others up. We consider ourselves less than others. We show love to other people and lift them up. We strive to live selfless lives, confident of God's promises. We don't need to defend ourselves. We recognize that Jesus was perfect. 
And he had many enemies, and they killed him. They treated him that way. They're going to treat us that way as well. They hated the master. They're going to hate the slaves. The good news is that God's covenant promises include protection and security, and we can rest in that. God will fight for his own people. So call upon God's covenant promises. Remember the love behind the covenant promises. And when the enemy comes, remember that God is bigger. His covenant is sure, and it cannot be broken. Let's conclude by looking just at the peace of the covenant very quickly. Jonathan knows that David's truly in danger. He shoots the arrows. He tells the boy to run farther. He tells the boy to go back to the city after the message is passed. Apparently, the coast is clear. They've got nobody following them, so they actually do get to come together and meet one last time. They're both weeping. They're both grieving. And Jonathan says, go in peace. How can they have peace? My dad wants to kill you, and yet he says, go in peace. Because their covenant is sure, and the Lord is watching over them. The word for peace, of course, is shalom. Shalom means more than just, nobody's attacking me. I don't have any enemies right now. I don't have any troubles right now. Shalom is a word that's deeper and more rich in meaning than than that. It's more of a fullness, a completeness in life of safety for your soul, of health and prosperity for your soul, of contentment and peace in your soul. It's a full-orbed kind of soul-fulfilling, complete happiness. Shalom. And it's only possible in Christ. The world looks for that peace. John 14, 27, Jesus said that, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. It's not as the world gives do I give you. So let not your hearts be troubled and let them not be afraid. That striving and all that attempt to find peace, to find some contentment in everything else. Think of all the things that people are looking for contentment in in our world today. Entertainment, family, a good marriage, education, money, whatever. It's never going to make them find shalom. It's only found in Christ in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for bringing us your shalom in Jesus Christ. Thank you for saving us, for making us yours, for giving us a knowledge of this salvation, for opening our eyes by the power of your spirit. Thank you that we have great security in your covenant promises. We have great security in all that you've done and all that you had said you would do. Lord, your word is sure. When everything around us is shaky and wavering and unsteady, your word and your promises for us are sure. So let us find security there. Let us find peace there. Shalom in Christ. And let us be courageous. In Jesus' name, amen.